Turn with me to Luke chapter 9. This morning's message is entitled simply The Transfiguration. So that's what we will examine. And to open, I want to ask you what is the greatest sight you've ever seen? God has blessed me beyond measure to see some of the most amazing sights our world over. This is Murchison Falls on the left in Uganda where the Nile River squeezes into about a 20-foot gorge. Telefotipico on the right in Ecuador. Vicky Cook, I mean, I'm sorry, Bora Bora. <laughs> Had to throw that in. My son said, we need to put a slide on there just for mom. So, um, Bora Bora, as I've told you, I don't just hunt for the deer. Some of the sunrises and sunsets, man, I have seen. And then this past year, Yosemite, just to name a few. Psalms 19.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. God has given me a breathtakingly small glimpse of His glory. So I imagine when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain to pray, they had no idea what awaited them. The promise that he had made just a few days before, I tell you truly, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God was about to come to pass. Jesus, whom they had just confessed as Messiah, would soon transfigure. The veil of his humanity would be pulled back and his deity within would shine through brighter than the noonday sun. They would see the greatest sight not only that they would ever see, but that could ever be seen. And that was Jesus in all His glory. It was an experience too wonderful for words. One that made Murchison Falls and Bora Bora look like nothing. And it was an experience that would stay fresh in their minds for years to come. If you want to jot a note... 2 Peter 1, 17-18, we'll look at that in a little bit. That's what Peter wrote some 30 years after this event. Let me read you what John wrote some 50 years after this event. In John 1, 14, he said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, Father full of grace and truth. It was a event that would anchor their souls in times that were going to be hard in the years to come. And it was a preview, a trailer, if you will, of what was to come not only for them but for all of us as believers in Jesus. When He comes back at His second coming for Paul in Colossians 3.20 says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So what the disciples experienced that day that, can anch that anchored their soul, we today can experience the same and it can anchor our souls. And I'm going to tell you, if you leave here today and you ain't fired up by this message, then your wood's wet or it might be petrified. One of the two. So stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 9. Verses 28 to 36. 
Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parted from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, and no one, and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. The word of God to the people of God, preached in the power of the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for this day to gather together, and most importantly, to worship you. Father, to worship what your Son came and did, Father, here on this earth, to live the life we never could live, to pay the debt that we never could pay, that we can spend an eternity with you. And so, Father, as we come to the Lord's Supper table this morning to remember that sacrifice, help it to always be fresh upon our hearts and our minds. Father, we thank you that you have given us this time to come and to hear from your word. And Father, I pray that you would speak through me, that your people would hear who they really need to hear today, which is not Buffy Cook, but from the Lord God Almighty. And so we just pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that would be molded, Father, to go from here and to do your will according to your word. For it's in Jesus' wonderful and precious name that I pray. Amen. So first I want you to look at the situation. The situation, we have to go back up to verse 27. That's the promise. Jesus said, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Remember last week I told you there are seven major views on this one verse given that all three of the synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the context is this promise is made immediately prior to the transfiguration, then Jesus' promise is the transfiguration. And so if you look at verse 28, it says some standing here in verse 27, and notice who goes up. Some, not all. Peter, John, and James. And then he says, will not taste death. This is a prophecy inside a promise. Remember last week we said confessing equals accepting equals embracing. If we confess Christ then that means we accept a Christ that died and that means that we embrace a cross of our own, potentially even death. And so this prophecy of Christ would come true just over a decade. Acts 12, 2 we read that James was the first disciple martyred. They desperately needed this experience in the rough road that was going to come ahead. And then see the kingdom of God. Well, what is that? Well, that would be the Jesus that was soon going to be crucified, that was now going to be glorified before them, and that one day is coming again to rule here on earth. Amen? And it might be in the next two seconds that he comes back. Because there ain't anything, as we talked about in Sunday school, needs less else fulfilled other than the Father turning to the Son and saying, Go get them. I'll be happy if he raptures us out of here right in the middle of this sermon. Amen. I'll be happy for it not to get finished. And so they needed this desperately. It was going to be an anchor for their souls. So look now at verse 28. 
And I want to talk about the parallels. Look at what Luke writes. He says, now about eight days. If I had you turn to the accounts in Matthew and Mark of this, it says after six days. So which is it, Pastor? Is it eight days or is it six days? Yes. Luke is potentially counting day one as Peter's confession, six days, and day eight, Jesus' transfiguration, which then is about eight days and after six days. You see how you can then make that match? What we have to understand is that the Bible is Eastern and ancient, not Western and modern. And so we can't take a writing that was written then and try and make it then meet the rules of John Grisham. It's not going to work. And so as part of application, I think much of this that skeptics then say about this, well, which is Is it six or is it eight days, is nitpicking. The same folks that then try to, here you've got your Bible, and here you have your secular sources. Aristotle and Plato and Homer and whatever else ancient writing you want to put up against it. The same scrutiny that they give then to the Bible, you can't give that same scrutiny to my source over here. And so the reason that they then nitpick this is this. Because if I can prove Luke 9.28 wrong, you know what else I can prove wrong? I can prove wrong that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. You then can say that Luke 24, 5-6 is wrong. Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? He is not here. He is risen. So if I can prove six days versus eight days wrong, then the resurrection is wrong, and guess what happens to Christianity? It folds up like a house of cards. But ultimately, what they don't want you to prove is Romans 14, 12. Each of us must give an account to God. The reason they discredit the Bible is because they don't want to be personally accountable to a three-time holy God. And maybe you're saying, well, so what, Pastor? Well, I'll tell you, so what? People in this day and age are going to bring the supposed errors in the Bible up. And so two things. You better be able to defend your faith. First Peter 3.15 says, Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect. So you need to know some of these common ones and how to answer them. So defend your faith and you need to protect your faith. Jude 12 says that false teaching and false teachers are like hidden reefs. What will a hidden reef do to a ship? We're not rocket scientists. You know, it will sink it. Will it not? Yes. So you better know the answers to some of this stuff because if you don't, Satan has a toehold to then shipwreck your faith. Alright, so that's the parallels. Next, the people. Look at what it says now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James. Three times <laughs> Jesus only takes these three disciples with him when he raises Jairus' daughter here and in the garden. Now let me ask you, if you're Thomas or Andrew or Bartholomew, how do you feel about that? Let's be honest. 
They're going up with Jesus. Where are they going? We want to go. No, you need to stay down here in the valley. Left out. Maybe you're thinking, is this fair? Why is Jesus doing this? First, is this fair? We balk at such favoritism as this, don't we? Let me just first and foremost say this, that Jesus is God and He can do whatever He wants. Amen? Amen. That's where we need to start off first. But Jesus doesn't treat people equal if that's what fair means. Turn to Matthew chapter 25. Because we think fair equals equal. Correct? Let me ask you, do you discipline all of your children in the same manner? We don't. Now the same offense is going to get punishment. But I can tell you that the thing that I dole out for Matthew Cook as punishment means absolutely nothing to Will Coley and what I dole out to him means absolutely nothing to Matthew. Are you treating them unfair and unequal? No. Matthew 25. Verse 14, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them, notice there, his property. What did I say? Jesus is God and He can do whatever He wants. It's His property. He sits in the heavens and He can do whatever He wants. To one He gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each what? According to His ability. He treats people according to their ability. And you know the end of the story. What's the end of the story? Does it then matter who has five, two, or one? What matters is what they did with it. Right? Alright, so the second thing, why is Jesus doing this? Because it's His strategy. That's what we've been talking about in Master Plan of Evangelism. The number one first principle was selection. Men were His method to win the world to God, and He concentrated on the few but not neglecting the masses. And now, you know, because of that strategy, what we have, 2,000 years later, billions of people across this planet claim allegiance to Jesus Christ. Because His strategy works. And so, as point of application, let me tell you, it's not where you are. And it's not what you have. It's not whether you're in the 70 or the 12 or the 3. And it's not what you have, whether God has given you five talents or two talents or one talent. It's what are you doing with it? I'd rather have a church full of two-talent folk that go out and try to win five-talent worth of the world than to have people with 25 talent that do nothing with it that go and bury it like the wicked servant did with the one. So are you a good steward of your talents? Alright, next is the place. It says, Now after eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain. The is a definite article, so it suggests there's a specific mountain in view. Maybe it was so well known, Luke didn't have to tell which one it was. Tradition is that it was Mount Tabor, but that's too far from where they were, which was Caesarea Philippi, and it was occupied militarily by Rome, so it's probably Mount Hermon. But as one uh, pastor said, playing down the identity of the mountain has the effect of magnifying Jesus, because he's the, the hero of the story, not the mountain. Amen? Who cares what mountain it is? What we're worried about is Jesus, who's on the mountain in all his glory. 
Alright, look at then the praying. Why did they go up on the mountain to pray? I read something this week that said, could you imagine that? Could you imagine Jesus inviting you to come away with Him to pray? Would that not be awesome? <coughs> Brothers and sisters, He's invited us every single day to come away with Him and pray. We have that ability. This is the first of many things Luke alone mentions in this account, is that they went up to pray. Seven times in the Gospel of Luke, he alone mentions Jesus praying at his baptism. He withdrew when he picked the disciples before Peter confessed. Here, uh, with the, the return of the 72 at the Lord's Prayer and twice on the cross. As I've said before, Luke pictures a Jesus who bathed everything in prayer. So you can write this, the transformed life is the praying life. And are y'all tired of me asking you yet, how's your prayer life? Well, get tired of it because I'm going to keep on asking. Alright, so that's the situation. Next, look at the transfiguration in verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. We've got to get a little context of this, so I want you to turn to Luke chapter 2 as I kind of give you the full context, but turn to Luke chapter 2. Don't you love a great ending to a great movie? Now I want you to picture a movie entitled The Glory of God. Now I'm going to play it out for you quickly because I know y'all ain't got all day. It starts all the way back in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2. God's walking with Adam and Eve. His glory's all around them, right? They get kicked out of the garden. And then the pillar of glory goes with the Israelites in the desert, in the wilderness, right? In Exodus 13. Moses then asked the Lord, said, I want to see your glory. And he said, big boy, I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to hide you behind a rock. And I'm going to let you see my glory. And as his glory passed by, he then got to see the afterglow of it. And then if you remember, the glory resided in the tabernacle. Then it resided in the temple. And then Israel became an apostate nation full of idolatry. And in Ezekiel 8, he has, or Ezekiel 10, Ezekiel has a vision, Ichabod, which means no glory. The glory of God literally left. And no one saw it for 600 years. That's, now here comes the ending to the movie. You ready? Picture this. It's a cold winter's night. The trembling hands of a carpenter wet with the blood of birth hold his steaming sun up in the starlight and BAM! Look at verse 8. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and what? Glory, hallelujah, the glory of the Lord shone around them. And the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy and this will be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Glory, hallelujah. 600 years, no glory, and now the glory is laying in a manger. Mm. And now they're about to see that glory high up on a mountain. And so notice this change. It's pitch dark. We know that by context. Jesus is framed by a thousand <laughs> summer stars, and as he's praying to unbelievable Mind-blowing things take place. The Greek is aorist tense, which basically means this. It happened like this. 
This wasn't some David Banner into the Incredible Hulk transformation that took two minutes. It was Jesus was standing there and he had his scraggly beard that was filled with dust and then all of a sudden, bam! As Matthew says, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white. Mark says, intensely white as no one on earth could even bleach them. The word here Luke uses is that of lightning. You know how bright lightning is, don't you? I mean, what a picture. Anybody that knows me knows that I'm a pyromaniac and love fireworks, right? Because right. everybody nods in agreement for those that might be visiting. Two views I enjoy when it comes to fireworks. The fireworks themselves, obviously. Number two is the faces of my kids. Their eyes wide and their skin reflecting the fireworks. And you know which of the two is the best? Number two. Jesus saw his own glory reflected in the face and the eyes of his kids, his awestruck disciples. Can you imagine that? Mm. Mm -hmm. The glory that was always underneath. Because I want you to understand that this wasn't something that was like a when it says transfigure, it wasn't something that he changed and how he never was. It's just the veil of his humanity was taken off and the glory of his deity, which had always been there from the day he entered here as a baby in that manger, shone through. I love what Dr. McGee said. He said, some people ask a silly question. Are we going to wear clothes in heaven? He said, I think we will, but I don't believe we'll need them because we'll be clothed in this glory light such as clothed our Lord. Glory. Hallelujah. Alright, so the cause. What's the reason behind this event? First, it was God's seal of approval to Peter's confession of faith. It was the Father's way of encouraging the Son as He began to make His way to Jerusalem. It was an illustration of the promised kingdom of God because the disciples were confused about Jesus' prediction of His passion. And fourth, what I want us to get is that it was practical. You and I can have a spiritual transfiguration experience each day as we walk with the Lord. Romans, turn to Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, verse 1, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There's that word, metamorphosis. Be transfigured. How? By the renewal of your mind. That word in the Greek basically means to renovate. You know what you do when you renovate a house that's all messed up? You tear it completely out. That's what we need to do to our minds tear out all the garbage that's in it and fill it with the Word of God. What have I said? Garbage in, as Billy said, is what? Garbage out. Stinking thinking is what a lot of us suffer from and we need to renovate, get the garbage out of our mind and put in the Word of God. And so as we do that, then 2 Corinthians 3.18 says we are transformed from one image to another into the likeness of Christ. And so as far as application, let me ask you, how's your transfiguration going? How's your sanctification going? 
Now, as I've said, the sermon has to come through me before it goes through you. And many times it has to do that painfully. Because we all want to think that we got it going on, don't we? And this week in particular, God has even shown me in the last 24 hours, you still got a lot to go, big boy. As the old saying goes, praise God that I ain't what I once was and I ain't what I'm going to be, amen? But God's got a lot to do on this old boy. And He's probably got a lot of work to do on you. But I want to ask you, how's your sanctification going? Do you look more like Jesus Christ today, 2018, than you did 2017, February the 11th? If not, why? And if you do, don't be satisfied. Paul in Philippians 3, 12-14 said basically he strained every muscle. Now we got some baseball coaches in here. I used to coach baseball. I wasn't nowhere near the level they were, but you know how I told my kids to run the first? And I guarantee you the same way y'all told your kid to run the first. There better be nobody. Did I not have this? We had drills. There better be nobody slowing down going to first base and stopping on first base. You better run all the way through to the parking lot and i got to go find you. That is what Paul is saying. He was straining so hard to look like Christ, he was straining every spiritual muscle possible to get there and hit that bag. And he never gave up. Brothers and sisters, I don't care if you look more like Jesus now than you did five years ago. Don't give up up continuing to pursue the high call of looking like Christ. Amen? Alright, next is the conversation. Look at verse 30 and 32. I'll get back there. Dr. Wearsley calls this the greatest Bible conference ever held on earth. It's got the greatest speakers and the greatest topic, but we're going to see also the greatest failure. Look at verse 30. Behold, two men were walk, or talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So super terrestrials, the greatest speakers, Moses and Elijah. There's much debate. Why is it these two? Why isn't it Isaiah and Jeremiah or Daniel and Joseph? And many commentators will say because Moses was a great lawgiver and Elijah was a great prophet, and so they represent the law and the prophets. But Elijah's never viewed that way in the Old Testament. Nor is there any evidence in Judaism they represented that. The best is that they were eschatologic figures, that they were both expected to return at the end of the age and the consummation of God's kingdom. Even thick-headed Peter understood that because he wants to build booths for them to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles in accord with Zechariah 14.16. Not only that, think of this, they intimate Jesus' resurrection and ascension. No one could find Moses' corpse. Can anybody find Jesus' corpse? And Elijah ascended into heaven and is still alive. And so what were they talking about? The super talk. Look at what they were talking about. Verse 31. They spoke of his departure. You see, if you don't learn to do some word studies or you kind of miss because his departure, actually the Greek word is this, exodus. They were talking about the ultimate exodus. And the Greek tense here is they weren't just talking for five minutes. This went on and on and on. 
What an amazing conversation. They were talking about the fact that Jesus fulfilled every messianic prophecy, all 300 of them down to the minutest detail. And what an amazing sight. Jesus was shining brighter than any constellation and any star in the sky. And he's talking to Moses who's been dead over 1,400 years and Elijah who's been gone over 900 years. And they're talking of his exodus. What did Moses do? He led the children of Israel out of bondage to Egypt. Elijah led them out of bondage to false gods, but only Jesus Christ can deliver us from bondage to sin and death, which is what most of us are in bondage to. Amen? And so that's why here in a minute when Peter then tries to equate Jesus equal to Moses and Elijah, you can't do that. Yes, Moses, you had a great exodus. And Elijah, you had a great exodus. But Jesus had the ultimate exodus in leading us to be freed from the things we need to be freed from. And so if you're here this morning and you say, well, I'm saved, Pastor Cook. Well, I want to ask you, have you truly experienced the exodus that Jesus has given us. Do you fear death? I've told you I have so many conversations in my office with Christians who fear death and are crippled by fear of death. Why? Jesus came to free us of that. If you still fear death, you're still in bondage. You haven't really experienced the exodus. Are you captive to sin? And I don't mean that you occasionally sin. I mean that you're in a pattern of unrepentant, habitual sin. If so, then you're still in bondage. Alright, next is super tired. Look here at verse 32. I don't want us to miss this. Luke alone mentions something we dare not miss. Look at verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. The greatest Bible conference ever held on earth And what are the disciples doing? Sleeping. Now I'm not talking one of these sleeps where you go and kind of nod off like Amy has kids do in class all the time. I'm talking one of these kind of sleeps where you wake up and you got drool hanging all out your mouth because the Greek word there means weighed down with sleep. You ever had to go wake somebody up and you thought they was dead, they were so heavy with sleep? That's how asleep these guys were. It's the same that happened to them in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we sit there and we read this and we go, man, these guys are such big dummies, ain't they? No. Because you know how it speaks to us? It speaks to you and it speaks to me because a lot of times we go through life and we're asleep to the things of God. We're not praying, we're not studying, we're not winning souls, we're lethargic and apathetic. And you say, well, not me, Pastor. Well, I sit up here and I see y'all. <laughs> and as I shared with Cassie earlier, I'll give you a little poem. The color of my pastor's eyes in truth I cannot well define. For when he prays, he closes his, and when he preaches, I close mine. <laughs> That's some of you! Paul told us in Romans 13, 11, he said, wake up! The time is here! We talked about it in Sunday school this morning. 
Revelation. Everybody wants to go, well, who's the Antichrist? I think it's Putin. No, I think it's Trump. No, I think it's Obama. No, I think it's Hillary Clinton. No, I think it's this person. I think it's that person. What is Babylon going to be? I think it's the European Union. I think it's uh, Islam. Dr. Rogers said we need to get our heads out of the clouds of prophecy and our feet on the street of soul winning. We need to quit worrying about all this other stuff that is extraneous garbage. I mean, this country, God, it's going to happen whatever it's going to happen, whether the Democrats wreck it, the Republicans wreck it, or they wreck it together, which is what I say is going to happen. But I, I can't affect that. I can't affect what Trump does tomorrow or Pelosi does tomorrow, but I can affect whether I share the gospel with that guy in room six. The time is short. We need to wake up. I love what Dr. Barclay said. He said, we would do well to pray. Lord, keep me always awake to you. That needs to be Buffy Cook's prayer. All right, next, the institutionalization. And I'm not talking about Bolivar Lakeside. I'm talking about establishing something, instituting something. That's what Peter wants to do. Look at verse 32 and 33. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. They finally wake up. They get the drool out of the corner of their mouth. And when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And note what Luke says, not knowing what he said. Oh, Peter, <laughs> impetuous, always talking when he ought to be what? Listening. Quiet and listening. He should have been silent and he what? Opens his mouth and starts chewing on his foot. Dr. Hughes said, if ever there was a time for silence, this was it. But Peter was a man who could always find something to say when nothing could or should be said. How often does your tongue get you in trouble? We got two ears and one mouth, but many of us think we got two mouths and one ear, don't we? And so Peter wants to institute the Feast of Booths. I mean, you've got to hand it to him. While they may have uh, said in Acts 4.13 that he was an illiterate ignoramus, he at least knew some scripture. Because three feasts will be celebrated in the millennium. The Feast of the New Year, Passover, and the Feast of Booths. And that's what Peter means by here. Let us make three tents. I mean, he's like, you know, I can imagine this scene and the scene as it's going on. Cooling the gang is back there in the back. Celebration. Let's celebrate and have a good time because Jesus is here in all His glory. And Moses and Elijah, and they're talking about the Exodus and how He's going to ransom us and save us from our sin and from death. That is joyous. Yes, let's celebrate. That's what Peter is saying. And we give it to old Peter a lot of times, but you've got to give it to him because I know a lot of Christians that think Christianity is the antithesis of joy. And a lot of Christians run around and they look like they've been baptized in pickle juice, not the Holy Spirit. This is a joy, is it not, Brother David? Thank you for always not just getting up here and playing songs and going, Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. No, it's not! The Spirit of the Lord is in this place. You're going to be jumping up and down saying, Glory, hallelujah, Jesus, save my soul! That's right. The greatest word He ever spoke was, I forgive Buffy Cook. And so Peter, you got to give it to him. He wanted to celebrate and party. 
He wants to hold on to this moment. Who wouldn't? But look at what Luke tells us. Peter didn't know what he was talking about. Let me give you four ways Peter didn't know what he was talking about. First, he was equating. He was equa- He said, let me give one booth for Moses, one booth for Elijah, and one booth for Jesus. And in essence, the error he was making is that they were equal. Jesus was a man, but he wasn't no man. He was the God-man. And so think about that. What do we put on par with Jesus? I know a lot of Baptists that put tradition on par with Jesus. I know a lot of Christians that say, well now I'm reading this book and I'm reading this book and I'm thinking, are you reading the book? And second, he was misunderstanding. He's saying, Jesus, come on, look now. You ain't got to go to Jerusalem. We can just go on and party right now because you are the exodus. He didn't understand that victory was going to have to come through suffering in the cross. And then thirdly, he was delaying. I mean, to stay up there would delay. And Jesus is on the Daniel's clock, isn't he? 62 weeks from the time of the decree going out to the time of the cutting off of the Messiah. And do you know that you can measure that exactly by days and you come to the exact day, April 30 A.D. when Jesus died. He was on a divine timetable. Peter's trying to mess up God's timing. How often do I try to mess up God's timing? How often do you try to mess up God's timing? We do it all the time. Amen? And fourth, he was denying. He wants to stay up on the mountain. He don't want to go back down in the valley. Any of you ever had a great spiritual experience? How many of you want to stay up there instead of going back down to the valley? But you know where they were needed? In the valley. Dr. Billy Graham said, mountaintops are for views and inspiration, but fruits grown in the valleys. We're needed in the valleys, brothers and sisters. Alright, finally, Revelation. Look at verse 34. He was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. They were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had Seen. So 600 years, nobody had seen the Shekinah glory of God, and then bam, here it is. And the disciples were terrified. You know, God's holiness will do that to you. I watched a video this week, Dr. Sproul, you can Google, what's wrong with these people? And he said, people would say, now when our ancestors sinned in the garden, and God kicked them out, and death entered the world, blah, 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 wasn't that too harsh of a punishment? And he said, what's wrong with you people? It wasn't harsh enough. You're messing with a three-time holy God. God's holiness will terrify you. And so, think about it. That pillar of the Exodus, the glory that had been in the tabernacle and the temple, it was there in Jesus. And think about it. That cloud is a prophecy. Let me just read these quickly for you if you want to notate it in your margin. Matthew 24, verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And Peter, or Paul, uh, gives us the promise in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18 that when that happens, that those of us who are still alive will be caught up with the dead in Christ who will be raised first. 
to meet together in those clouds. You and I are going to be in the Shekinah glory cloud together one day. That'll make any Baptist a Baptocostal. And then the words from above, look at what he says. It's written three different ways in the Gospels. Mark says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Matthew, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. Luke, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Do you think God is concerned with us listening to his son, Jesus? Remember, what does listen mean in Scripture? Listen so as to do. And so are you a hearer or doer. I heard Dr. Rogers this week say, sin in your life is like wax in your ears. If you have wax in your ears long enough, you're going to be coming to my office and begging me to get it out because you can't hear. But sin in our life is like wax in our ears and it keeps us from listening to God. And then he said, the best compliment to my preaching, Dr. Rogers said this, is not when you then tell me how good it was, but when you go out and you do what I said. And he gave this illustration. He said, if I were to tell y'all here this morning at Crossway, the building is on fire. Man, we love that word you gave us this morning. That was great. That was a fresh word from the Lord. And I love that story. Man, that joke you told. That was so awesome. No, I hope if I tell you the building is on fire, you run out of here. So the best compliment to God's Word is that we do it. Alright, and then finally, Jesus alone. He tells them to keep quiet. Why? You ever had a mystical or spiritual experience? Maybe it was so weird you just didn't want to share it. People wouldn't believe you if you told them. I imagine when they went down, they said, what happened up there? And they said, y'all wouldn't believe it if we told you. They would tell, but it would be after Jesus was raised. But why Jesus alone? Because Jesus is not only the focus of everything, Jesus is everything. (coughs) Remember what I said, the story of the little black lady, 1800. She sat in the church in Los Angeles. And any pastor that came into that pulpit, and within a few minutes, if if he wasn't getting Jesus Christ up, like she felt that he needed to get Jesus Christ up, she would sit there and she would make his life miserable because she would say the whole time, Get him up! Any man that stands in this pulpit doesn't need to magnify himself. He needs to get Jesus up because Jesus is everything. Finally in closing, so what? Why was this sight necessary? Just quickly. Jesus' inner circle needed to see His glory so they could grasp better who He was. Jesus had made them witnesses who could later testify as only eyewitnesses can of this and two of the three wrote down their impressions in John 1.14 and 2 Peter 1.16-18 and I think Jesus himself needed confirmation from the Father that this was the road that he wanted him to go to give his life on Calvary. Finally, I think most significant for us is this. Jesus was showing these three old fishermen. Now maybe you're in here today and this actually describes you. Their hair was receding and graying. Their ears were getting bigger and deafer. Their eyes were failing. Their teeth were decaying. Their faces were wrinkling. Their skin was leathery and rough from years on the water. I'm starting to look at my hands and go, man, I'm old. Their knees cracked, their back ached, and their hands popped because old author 
It doesn't set in from years of fishing. Am I describing any of y'all in here? Jesus was showing them the old gray mare ain't what she used to be. But glory, hallelujah, she ain't what she one day will be. Amen. That ought to make you all jump out of here. Let's, pass, let's get the offering plate and pass it around again. You ought to all jump around. I'll read it quickly. I know time is short, but this is the only sermon you're getting today. Unless you come back tonight, which you need to. 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all asleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, this mortal body must put on immortality. Glory, hallelujah. There will be no arthritis in heaven, and there won't be no wrinkle cream. And there won't be no it works because it don't work, but it won't be in heaven. Glory, hallelujah. I won't have to run on a treadmill to uh, burn off the hot fudge Sunday I had at Dairy Queen. Glory, hallelujah. <laughs> now I'm tell you as we close, I don't know what you're going through presently and neither of us has a clue what either one of us might have to deal with in the days to come. But one thing for certain, Jesus in all His glory can serve as an anchor for your soul. Like I said, if you don't leave here today fired up, your wood's wet or petrified and you need to get saved. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for this word that you've given us. Father, I just pray that it will resound in our ears and our minds and our hearts. I pray as we come to the time of invitation, any that don't know you today, that today would be the day of salvation. And I pray as we come, Father, to your table, that you would just help us to take it in the manner that is worthy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. As far as the invitation, I'll give you a story I shared with a... It's actually I shared with a guy in room three in my office. He's 68. He's got a list of problems half a mile long. His kidneys don't work. He's got diabetes. He's got neuropathy. His neck hurts. On and on. And, I, and he was just saying, man, you know, Doc, he said, I'm just growing tireder and tireder of this. I wish I didn't have to take all these pills and this and that and just felt the Holy Spirit. And I said, you know, I said, when patients say stuff like that, I think of the day in which Jesus is going to come back for all those who believe in Him is going to give them a glorified body, a body that don't have kidneys that tear up and diabetes and breast cancer and leukemia and this and that. I said, man, that is going to be an amazing day. Do you have that assurance that you know Jesus Christ? He said, well, I'm Catholic. And I said, well, brother, I've known you a long time, and I don't mean no offense, and I hope you don't take it this way. I said, but I didn't ask you if you was Catholic. I ain't asking y'all in here today if you walked an aisle when you were seven. And I ain't asking you if you signed up on a membership row somewhere. And I ain't asking if you're Baptist, Presbyterian, or Methodist, whatever. I'm asking you, do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Do you have assurance that if we don't make it through the rest of this invitation and He busts the sky wide open, that you're going to be caught up in the glory cloud with Him? Because if you don't have that assurance, brothers and sisters, Today is the day of salvation for a very good reason because as your medical examiner 
I know you ain't promised tomorrow, nor am I. So as we stand and sing, if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, let today be the day that He calls us in our home. Let's sing. Page 305. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back.